How many of you have ever done a trust fall or, or a faith fall or whatever you might call it? I mean, this picture, I don't know how it turned out to look up there. Yeah, it looks about what I thought it would look like. I hadn't checked that yet, but I, I looked it up in Wikipedia because, of course, you can trust Wikipedia, right? And it says a trust fall is a, a team-building exercise, right? You get together and have this exercise in which a person deliberately allows themselves to fall, trusting the members of the group. They're putting their faith and the members of the group to catch them, right? It's a team-building experience. It's one of those things where you, you have an opportunity to kind of show who you are and get a group of guys or a group of gals together, together and kind of build, right? So I remember uh, a few years back, this, this is going to go back a little bit uh, a ways, uh, when my older two boys were playing football at Stilcombe High School, uh, Coach Cook uh, took the boys over to the baseball field um, and, and put the, an opportunity out there for any young man that wanted to could climb up on top of the, uh, the baseball dugout and we would do trust falls there into the arms of, of their, their other football players. And one after another would get boosted up onto that and fall backwards. And, and of course, you had all the big strong linemen there taking pride in not dropping their teammates, right? Getting in there and catching them. And, and, and again, at the beginning of the season, you, you want to do this and you want to build the trust amongst the team and the faith that you would have in each other. And, and it's meant to build up faith in each other. And, and, and what, what, uh, what, what doesn't happen often in a trust fall um, is to have someone show up looking like this, right? If, if you showed up to a trust fall and you were wrapped in bubble wrap, what, are, you, are you showing faith or trust in your teammates? You know, obviously you're not. You're, one, you're wondering, you're worried, you're concerned. If I fall, what's going to happen to me, right? There, there's not a lot of faith being expressed by this guy. What would it tell your teammates what would it tell your coworkers if you showed up? Do, the, do you think they believe that you believe that they are going to catch you, right? It wouldn't be a healthy way to ask if you truly are trying to build trust amongst your group, right? The, 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 the thing they would see when they saw you come in dressed like this is he really doesn't trust me. Would acting like this help or hinder what you're trying to accomplish by doing a, a, a trust fall? Showing a lack of faith in those who are attempting to catch you, right, would show that you really don't trust them. And it would hinder the kind of growth that you were looking for or the coach, I should say, was attempting to get through this activity, when it comes down to it, it's all about faith. And we're going to see that today. So the question that we're going to be faced with is, where is your faith? Or even a, a more personal way to phrase it would be, what type of faith do I have? That would be a question you could ask yourself today. From our text, we're going to see two different types of faith from our characters we're, we're going to first see a healing faith, a faith that, that would 
uh, allow for growth and healing and, and positivity in the sense of, of a, a good example of what faith should look like. And then secondly, we'll be looking at a hindering faith. At some people who believe Jesus or, or see him and see what's going on, but they, they just have trouble with that. And we'll see that in our text today. So uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd want to invite you to jump into Mark chapter 2. Uh, you can open up to that. We also will have the words up here on the screen for you to follow along with. The Gospel of Mark, come follow me, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. When he returned home, during his ministry, what we've already looked at, uh, in Galilee, and, and he kind of d- had a home base of sorts. We know that Jesus never owned a home himself, but we know from the stories that there was kind of a home base that he liked to go to in Capernaum, and, and, and that became where he would go if he was returning home. It was a place of comfort. Uh, most often uh, when we think about it or when we talk about it, when it's discussed, they're guessing that it was probably Peter's family. Peter's mom's home is, is where uh, they would hang out. And if you have teenagers, you know that sometimes your home becomes the place that everybody wants to hang out at. And maybe, maybe Peter's mom was a good cook. You know, we don't know exactly why, but when they would come back to Capernaum, they would hang out. Their, their base of operations widely believed, uh, you know, what was to be Peter's home. This is actually the church of St. Peter it is built there right next to um, what would the possible site of this home. Uh, through excavation, they found this. Uh, I thought the picture was kind of neat. Uh, and then to imagine... Uh, that there is a, a really good chance, based on the history of this city, that this was the home or the foundation of the home that was built up, obviously not the church, uh, where, where this story may have taken place. And, and when you start looking into some of this stuff, it's pretty cool, the, uh, what they found doing all the archaeological digs and stuff. This is pretty cool. I, I just want to share that picture quickly with you. Uh, and, and we're going to see this story start to unfold around this place here. Um, The crowd, it says, was gathered so big that it had filled the home, right? The the home was filled. There were people standing at the door. There was no place to sit. They were probably oozing out even onto the street just to listen to what this man had to say. Jesus' teachings. People from all kinds of, of, of backgrounds were there, both socially and spiritually. You had those who were interested and curious. Who is this man? We've heard stories about what he's doing. You had the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Uh, we, we see that in Luke's version uh, in, in chapter 5. We know that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were there. You had people who were now devote followers Um, And you had some people there that were trying to trip him up and catch him uh, in in maybe a false teaching or or in blasphemy. That's kind of a spoiler alert, that word or that concept, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. So Jesus began, but he began teaching. Now, some of the people that may have showed up there today were hoping for healing of sick or, or miracles or something like that. And yet Jesus starts 
to teach. Remember, his goal was to come to this earth and to teach the word, which was uh, the truth about the coming of the kingdom of God. And so that is what his goal was. It says he began preaching the word to him. Jesus was there to tell them why he was there. The good news of his coming. That God had sent him, and in some ways, almost to reign in his body there uh, for that time, but building towards his ultimate death, burial, and resurrection. Not that he was giving that much information at this time, but that's what he was teaching the people. That's what he was putting out there. He wanted his ministry to be all about the good news. And we see that there. It says he was preaching the word to them. One of the quotes I came across this week, it says, more than any other expression in early Christianity, the word defines the essence of Jesus' ministry. Okay, so anytime we're talking about the word, in your mind, go to a place where you understand that Jesus is sharing the good news. What ultimately becomes the gospel, he is talking about God loving mankind enough to send Jesus to them. Jesus came to preach that. And he was smack dab in the middle of a full house, right? There were people all over the place. There were probably people in the kitchen, you know, and in the bedrooms. And they're, they're listening. The place is packed. A lot of these people, like I said, could have been gathering to hear or to see, I should say, the miracles because the word was starting to get around what Jesus could do. Maybe casting out of the demons or, or healing of the sick and the diseased. And yet, it didn't matter why they had shown up. Jesus took this opportunity to share the word. He's teaching on what really matters. They needed a, a healing but they needed that healing for their heart. They needed a, a healthy faith, uh, healthy faith or a, a healthy trust, not one that was just based on what Jesus might be able to do for them. Continuing on in verse three, it says, and they came bringing uh, him a paralytic carried by four men. So Jesus is inside, he's teaching, place is packed. And they came bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So again, we remember from the start of the study in Luke, Luke just pops through things, right? He's talking, he's talking, he's like, hey, they, they came back home, they're in Capernaum, Jesus is teaching, the place is packed, and they came to him with a paralytic, their friend, four friends, right? We see here, you got five friends total. One of them is a paralytic. The other four are on the corners. Uh, he, is a, he is a man who is lame. He could not walk, okay? Um, and, and they bring him to Jesus because they have a faith that Jesus can and will heal him. They, the act we see of assisting or carrying their friend to Jesus, uh, it, it shows that they are at least interested in seeing what Jesus could do, if not having the full faith of their lame friend who believes that if he gets near Jesus or if is able to be touched by Jesus, he could be healed. 
So what they know, what they believe about this situation causes them to do something a little extreme. They can't get to Jesus. They can't get to Jesus. He's in the middle of the house. It's, it's packed. The place is packed. They cannot get through there. But instead of giving up, instead of getting discouraged, what do they do? They take matters into their own hands. Uh, the, the homes a lot of times were built with a staircase up the back and, and a pretty thick, solid roof, flat roof, so that they could go up there in the cool of the evening and, and cool down. And so it looks like here that the friends carry the, the lame man, their, their friend, up these back stairways to get on the roof of the house. The roof did not look like what our roof looks like, obviously. The pitch wasn't there. The, the, the shingles weren't there. Um, most of these roofs were made by laying timbers on top of each other and then caking it with mud, right? And then the sun would bake that mud. And, and, and sometimes those roofs could be as thick as two feet thick. Uh, and they just would pack this rooftop and continue to layer it up, the hot sun baking the mud, and they would, they would then be able to use that area, like I said, in the cool of the evening. It would also give them some protection. Uh, so the roof could have been like that. There's also speculation it could be tiles. There are some areas in that region that had tiles even back then. Re it doesn't matter. Regardless of what it was made of, there was a roof. They were up on it, uh, and, and they, they had to get creative, right? So they tore the roof apart. Can you imagine, whether you imagine being Jesus who's standing there and teaching in a packed room or one of the people who's listening, but if all of a sudden there's noise, right, and you hear this noise and, and, and then stuff starts falling on you, right, and you're in a packed house, you can't get out of there, and you're wondering what's going on up there, right, and the, the pieces of the roof start falling in and, and as they're tearing it open, pretty soon there's a hole in the roof, the friends believed, they had a faith that their friend would be healed. So it didn't matter what the cost was. It didn't matter what the cost was. Because they knew if they could get their friend in front of Jesus, that is all that would matter. When I was reading through Kent Hughes' book this week, it says in the midst of all that just happened, everything that was going on, here you have the prince and the paralytic. No, it didn't matter how many hundreds of people were there or, 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 or how crowded it was. It got to that moment where you had Jesus and the man who needed Jesus. The Son of God and the sick man. This is where the healing faith comes in, right? These friends, uh, uh, the lame man, they believed. They knew and, and, and believed that if Jesus could be in front of their friend and see what he needed, that he would heal their friend. And so they weren't going to let anything stop them. We can't get in through this crowd. We're going to go onto the roof, and then we're going to tear open this roof, and then we're going to lower him to Jesus. Their faith can and should challenge you and I today. Their faith was persistent. They didn't stop. Their, their, their faith was creative. They found a way. They removed the roof. Their faith was sacrificial. Because I'm guessing the damage that they, they did to that roof, 
they probably stuck around and helped repair that roof or they paid to get it fixed. There was a sacrifice involved, right? The time, the labor, the materials, they were, gonna, they were going to pay. But they had a persistent, creative, sacrificial faith. Is that the kind of faith you and I have today? Do we have a faith like that? And, and if so, what does that look like? Do you ever take time to look at yourself and, 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 and think about the life that you're now leading because of your relationship with God? How does it look? How should it look? How is it different than those in your circles, whether it's your family, your neighbors, your coworkers? When you read the promises of the Bible, do you fully trust and believe them? Or do you just brush them off as a, as a nice thought? But these aren't applicable to me today. These men here, they had, they had healing faith because look what happens in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, you're you're, 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 you're healed. Get up and walk. No, he didn't say that. Look what he said. He said, son, your, your sins are forgiven. Again, Mark uh, taking a, these turns and these just short and to the point. He, he says to them, I see your faith. Right? Jesus sees their faith. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. The faith of these men is what motivated Jesus to move. Jesus was impressed with their faith. He, he honored their faith by pouring out mercy on the paralyzed man. It was, it was this healing faith. But the, the word in this verse that I want to draw attention to and have been trying to thus far in this sermon is faith, this trust in God. And yet here we see the double meaning that's coming into play here. The friend's intention of bringing their lame friend to Jesus was not for his sins to be forgiven. They were looking for Jesus to do a miracle and heal their friend. That, that's the faith that they had. But now we know that there's another word for faith. Uh, and we see that through Jesus' statement to them at the end of verse 5, that the faith can also mean believing in Jesus and the words that he is expressing and what he is all about. And this isn't the first time that they might have been hearing the word, the good news. It started a while back with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was baptizing, but he was baptizing repentance and the forgiveness of sin. In other words, you need to change what you're doing. And that is what Jesus continued on in his ministry. So we see a somewhat strange response to their request from Jesus as they were essentially there looking for a physical healing. But as, as strange as this may seem on the outside, from so many perspectives of people in that room, this was a massive statement as to who Jesus was. And I think that's why Mark tells this story. I think that's why Mark points this out. Because if Jesus had simply said, son, you are healed, get up and walk, it would have been a great miracle and people would have seen and maybe even some would have come to faith that day and believed. But this is a shift in who Jesus 
is presenting himself to be. Up to that point, people may have seen him as a Messiah. They knew that he had power. He was healing people. He was doing miracles. But here the shift in Messiah changes. Originally, the, 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 the children of Israel were hoping for a Messiah that would come and free them from the, the reign of the Romans on them, the, the oppressive uh, reign that they had and, and, and capture of the city and the, and the country. And they, and they wanted a Messiah that would save them from that. And yet Jesus didn't come for that reason. He came to free people from the power of sin. And here we see Jesus claiming to be God. And you may say, well, I don't see that there, Mark. Well, any good Israelite would know that if you claim to have the power to forgive sins, the only person that can do that would be God. Jesus is coming out at this point and saying, I am not only uh, the Messiah who's here to set you free uh, in, in the hopes of a future but I am the one that is here to set you free in the hopes of eternity. That what I'm offering you today is not just for the short future, but it is forever. I have the power to forgive your sins. He's not only the Messiah, the Messiah that they were thinking about, but he was God. And we know that because we have the whole book you know, and we've read through this and we see that, these people just thought he was there and, and, and potentially there to, to, to give them some freedom in the here and now. None of them uh, necessarily had placed that, that faith in him knowing that he was God. And that's why this statement would have taken this room by a storm. And, and there, there was probably a collective gasp this man, this son of man is now declaring that he has the ability to forgive sins. That's only something that God can do. So at this point, he was either telling the truth or he was a madman. There wasn't anything in between that. And I, I think that if you've been around in the Christian circles long enough, you've heard that sort of a story. Like a lot of people want to say that Jesus is just a good man. He came here, did some great things. And yet there's that concept that, that really, no, he is claiming to be God. So he either is who he says he is or he's not. C.S. Lewis put it best in Mere Christianity. If you've read that book, when he talks about Jesus and, and who he was, he cautions people about saying that Jesus wasn't God. He was just a good moral teacher. He says, a man that was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would uh, either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be a devil from hell... You must make your choice either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman and something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
He continues on, uh, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense. That's what Lewis says about this being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He did not intend to. If what Jesus says in his uh, words that are recorded in the Bible are not 100% true, that he is not fully God who has the power to forgive your sins, he is not a good moral teacher. He was a nut job. That's what it is saying here. Jesus declaring himself the Son of God, that he has the power to heal physically and spiritually. Jesus could not just heal somebody in their body, but he could heal their soul. A faith that heals. That is what Jesus was claiming. That is what the followers and the people who came that day needed to hear. But when we look at these next few verses, we see that there were other people in that room today. The response of this bombshell being dropped continues on in verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in this in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. I'm going to stop there just for a moment. Blasphemy in that day and age was someone who claimed to be God and was punishable by death. Period. If the religious leaders heard you claim to be God, the the punishment was death. This is a big deal to these scribes. Continuing on here, he is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you, uh, why do you question these things in your heart? The scribes were the, the teachers of the law. They were mentioned earlier in chapter 1, verse 22. If you've been here from the, the start of this study, um, and in Luke's accounts, he calls them the Pharisees, uh, the scribes. They were the same teachers. Jesus was different to them, though, uh, and to the people, I should say. Uh, in verse uh, one, or chapter 122, it talks about that, he, uh, uh, that Jesus taught with authority. He looked different than the religious leaders of that day. So these scribes were watching him closely already. They, they were threatened by him and the way he was teaching. He, they were threatened by the response of the people. Another crazy thing that, that we read earlier in this chapter is that the crowd was large and pushed in on him. There was no room for anyone to get close to Jesus. And yet, what does it say here? The scribes were sitting there. Again, for a man who was choosing to use as few of words as he could, I think Mark is pointing something out to us here. This was a prevalent thought of the religious leaders of that day, that they were better than the rest. So in a room where there was no room, they found plenty of room for themselves. They were probably there early, right? They wanted to make sure they got a good spot. They wanted to try to catch this Jesus but another observation we see here, not only is they got their early, got their seats, whatever that might mean, but that they were questioning in their hearts. Everything that Jesus was saying, the good news, the, the word that he was teaching, the gospel, they were questioning it. They were reasoning in their hearts. 
that's the literal translation there, the Greek, is that they were reasoning. They were, they were looking in their hearts, trying to reason. This was not equated with any emotion. They were processing all that Jesus was saying through this intellectual, or intellectual reasoning of, of a highly educated person. We're educated in the law, the religion of the day. How can this man be saying these things? So this brings them to the place of formulating this accusation. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive the sins but God alone? And so again, going back to my earlier statement, my case that what Jesus was saying there by forgiving sin was leaving no room for just him being a good moral teacher, we see that here in the scribe's words. This man's claiming to be God. Blasphemy, what does that mean? It's a, an irreverent, profane impious speech about God. The penalty for such speak, uh, speech it, it was death. Leviticus 24, 16. The scribes would have known that. The Pharisees would have known that. Anybody uh, that was an Israelite would have known that. If you claim to be God, that is punishable by death. The accusation was serious business and ultimately would be the charge that was brought against Jesus by the religious leaders of that day in the end. The observation that, that they made was this forgiveness of sin can only be accomplished by God and God alone. And, and that is 100% correct, right? Scripture verifies that in multiple places. You don't come to me and tell me your sins and then I forgive you. No, that's done by God and God alone. But what they failed to recognize, what these scribes and teachers failed to recognize is that God had planned for his incarnation to happen in the God-man Jesus Christ. Jesus was God's plan to bring his reign to earth, his authority to earth, and his forgiveness to people. Jesus can read these men like a book. Look at what he says to them next. Why do you question these things in your heart. Let's look at this interaction with Jesus and the scribes a little bit closer in these next few verses. It says, which is easier to say, Jesus is saying this, to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. What a great question Jesus poses to these religious leaders. He's sitting up there. He's teaching. All right, the interruption of the roof, and down comes the man. He says, hey, your sins are forgiven. Not the miracle they were hoping for, but a bold statement. The scribes in their hearts are questioning, and Jesus calls them out, which is easier for me to say, right? You don't believe me that I'm God, so which is easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk. Obviously, if I say to you, Brenner, your sins are forgiven, there's no outward expression of those words. You can't prove that I'm wrong. But if Brenner's leg is broken and he can't move, and I say, Brenner, you're healed, get up and walk, and he gets up and walks away, you all see that outward expression. Jesus knew what was going on, right? 
Jesus asks these questions of the scribes to bend their brains. He wants to interact with them. He wants to engage with them. In attempt to show them that both forgiveness of sin and healing can come from God, he decides to show his authority over the physical disability also. We see in verse 10 a, a reference to son of man. That, that term 14 times is used in Mark. Throughout the scriptures, we see it a handful of times referring to a coming Messiah, the one that God has promised to send in the Old Testament. And then again, we see it in Revelation, where John's getting this revelation on the island of Patmos. He refers to Jesus Christ as the Son of Man. Again, tying Jesus into the story that started in Genesis 1 and finishes at the end of the book of the Revelation of John. Jesus was more than willing to identify as God. We see that here. We see that elsewhere in the Gospels. He has the authority uh, that the, 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 the scribes were questioning whether he could even have or obtain. He had the authority to forgive sins and the authority to heal. Again, at the beginning of this study, we talked about words that were going to be popping up throughout Mark, and one of them was authority. That Jesus truly had the authority to accomplish these things. We see that here. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I'm also going to heal this man. Authority. So Jesus heals the man. He says, I, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. You don't believe me that I have this authority? I'm going to show you. Uh, go ahead. Get up and go. Look what happens. The man. And he rose and immediately, another one of the words that we're going to be watching throughout uh, the book of Mark, immediately he picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed glorified God saying we never saw anything like this here's the beauty in this story is is the immediacy of the healing no waiting no requirements no stipulations just healing just Jesus he rose he got up literally the Greek says he was raised his limbs came back to life can you imagine if you were there and you knew this man his whole life? This is not a large city. So he had his four friends that brought him, but we can imagine from this story, this is probably someone who spent time at a gate, the gate of a city, begging for his family because he couldn't work, right? So this was common. People saw them. People gave to them because they felt bad for him. And this room was packed, right? It was packed. They knew this man. What we also can see from this miracle here is the public nature of it. He did this in front of a large crowd. Jesus healed this man. Jesus was a, a clear pronunciation of God's presence and his power, right? That was showing up in the form of Jesus and being shown through his ministry physical as well as spiritual. When we see God work, uh, we are as may, as, uh, I should say this, when we see God work, 
are we as amazed as these people were. Drew and I, as we were preparing this sermon this week, we sat around and talked about that for a while. If you were in this room and you saw this man healed and he got up and walked, you would probably be like me, at least what I think I would have been like. I would have been like, wow, this is incredible. I've known this guy forever. He's never been able to use his legs. This Jesus is something else, right? So we were talking about that and how unique of a situation and how this book is full of these stories. And and we say we believe them, right? And that's part of our faith. And yet as Drew and I were sitting there, we said, are are we willing to see and give God this kind of glory when he shows up in our lives? Right? Now, some of you may have asked for physical healings for yourself or for a family member, not gotten them. And, And that's another topic for another day. But what we were focusing in on here, even though this story is about the physical healing, is how many times has God shown up in your life? especially in the worst times. And are we the kind of people who are willing to give God glory for that and allow those instances to change who we are and who we are going to be and how we are going to live the rest of our life? It Will it change our faith, right? Will we have that healing faith, that healthy faith, that, that one that allows us to believe in God and, and move forward in the health that can come from that faith and that life? Or are we going to have a hindering one like the Pharisees, the scribes had, that were skeptical? They hated Jesus because Jesus was a threat to them. They didn't understand. Their, they had a faith. It just wasn't in Jesus Christ. You and I, are we willing to see God in our lives? And what's going on in our everyday situations and give glory to God when he shows up in our lives. And I know some of you out there have had the physical healings. I've talked with you. I've been there. I've been at the hospitals when you've needed the healing, the miracle. And we've seen God come through. But are we the kind of people that will continue on giving God the glory for that? In our text today, we see two different kinds of faith. We see these examples of faith. We saw a healing faith with the friends and and the paralytic man, that faith that they had. They didn't stop at anything to get Jesus, uh, to get their friend in front of Jesus. They did whatever it took. They didn't care what the cost was. They just knew they had to get there. They put their faith and their trust in the healing power of Jesus. We also saw a, a group of people that did the opposite. They had a hindering faith. They still had faith, but it was placed in something else. It was not placed in the one it should have been. The scribes and the Pharisees had placed their faith in the law and in their jobs and in tradition. And you and I, today, if we're not careful, we can do the same thing. We can place our faith in our our job and our wealth and our family and our status. And yet we need to be focusing in on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Each one of us here today has faith. We all have faith in something. Is it a healing faith or a hindering faith? So that's the question that we're faced with today. You and I, where are we placing our faith? Who are we placing our faith in? Are you today placing your faith in the one true source? 
the Son of God, Son of Man, who has the power to heal both physically and spiritually? Are we placing our trust and faith in Him, looking to Him as the the source of everything we need in this life? Or are we like the Pharisees and the scribes, placing our faith in other things? Maybe you're here today because you feel, if I go to church every once in a while, check that box off. I'm a pretty good man. Check that box off. I'm building up my savings for my family. Check that box off. And you haven't experienced what it's like to be forgiven by Jesus Christ. To place your faith in Him and to move forward in a faith that allows you to grow to become the person that God has called you to be. If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ today, and that's something that you want to do, make sure you talk to someone before you leave. Pastor Dave, myself, Hayden, any of us would love to talk to you. If you haven't taken that step where you place your faith in Jesus Christ, but you're, you're feeling the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart, don't leave today without doing that. Or your friends, your family members you came with, they would love to talk to you about that too. Christians, if you're here today, what are you placing your faith in? Maybe you've taken that step of faith. You've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, right? But are you living a life that is showing that? Are you placing your faith daily in Him? Or is there something hindering you today and that ability to come fully and follow Jesus? And if so, again, don't leave today without making that right before God.